The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Our guest today, Robin Aisha Lansong, has just returned from a second journey with her husband, John, to Zimbabwe, where she reunited once again with memories of her horrible experience and the friends who helped save her. Robin is a multiple near-death survivor whose brutal experiences, coupled with her NDE, opened her creativity and empathic knowing. When Robin was eight years old, an American man abducted her and took her to Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. He eventually abandoned her to another man who wound up abandoning her on the road. Facing certain deaths, she was fortunately adopted and cared for by the people of a small tribal village, but the danger did not end there. She was shot by a soldier, experienced an incredibly visionary NDE, and once again was forced to escape when the village was attacked. On this show, she continues the story of her personal quest to understand what happened to, to her there. If you haven't already listened to parts one, and two of Robin's story, including her NDE when she nearly died, I suggest you click on our past shows button at NDE Radio for her interviews of March 6, 2017 and June 5, 2017. Today, Robin is a visual artist, medicine singer, craniosacral therapist, and health intuitive. She has given many thousands of healing sessions and lives with uh, her husband, John, in Olympia, Washington, her beautiful book, Art Inspired by My Death Experience, uh, can be seen on her website. Reb- Robin, uh, welcome back to NDE Radio. Thank you, Lee. It's so great to hear your voice. Oh, good to hear yours, too. Well, tell us about your second trip. Um, how long were you there? When did you get back? Mm, that's a great question. So I just looked on the calendar and realized I've only been back for five weeks. So that really helps me understand. I'm still very much integrating. Yes. And so we were um, there in uh, five weeks ago for, and we were there for three weeks. Mm-hmm. And and it was a, again a really incredible experience. We found some another person who knew me as, as when I was eight years old there, and and it was an amazingly casual uh, connection. Actually, she looked at me and she laughed and she said, "Oh, you've grown." Since you were eight years old, yes, you you would. (laughs) Yeah, so since it was in 1977, um, I'm 50 now. And uh, so I also got to uh, reconnect to Mayamu, whose grandmother is one of the uh, women who saved my life. And and it was such a rich connection again. And she, we talked with her for another hour interview, and we have a translator, she speaks Benda. And again, just filling in more details. And one of the things that I really got more thoroughly this time was that even though the war was 42 years ago, they're still in a unsafe government. And Mugabe went down um, this past year, or you know, kind of the last calendar year. But it's still, you know, when there's been a dictatorship for so long, it's still. Usually it's another dictatorship that comes in. And so 
some people are willing to tell us and talk to us about that time period and other people still feel unsafe. And so our research is tricky. One, because, you know, a lot of people died from the war. So some of the key people aren't alive anymore or they've just died from age. And two, people's willingness to talk about that time period even now um, is tenuous. And I was speaking to, right at the very end, we went to the kind of official office of one of the government agencies. And I asked him very directly, you know, is there any chance we're going to find records of the battle that happened near the village I was in? So we had some historic documentation. And he just looked at me and he said, he said, Robin, people don't write things down while they're running for their lives. And he said, even if anybody had written anything down, which they wouldn't because their, their level of danger was so high, they were escaping that those records would have been destroyed by uh, Mugabe when he came into power. So it's a bit of a challenge in terms of the research, and we really accepted that it has to really come through people. And like we went and returned to the hospital where I was actually in South Africa once I'd been taken across the border. And again, you know, we, we had been there two years ago and checked in with her, and she said she would look. And she came back and told us, there's not going to be any records before apartheid ended in South Africa, so 1994. She mm-hmm. said the records were just destroyed, and you know during when apartheid ended, and so it's really about trying to find any living people who remember. And I don't get the the security. You know, at some point there might be something turning up, but so far, in all our efforts to find any written records, um, there aren't any. And so that's disappointing because I, I know that that makes it um, more easy for some people to accept this story. And and the direction I've gone is to really research, again, the people and also the effects of trauma, you know, that, of course, affected myself and as well as the other people who lived through the war. And so this past year, I've been really diving into I've gotten trainings with Bessel van der Kolk, who wrote The Body Keeps the Score, and Peter Levine, who's also one of the leaders in trauma resolution, and I'm about to take another class with Deb Dana, who's about the polyvagal theory. So it's been a really interesting exploration in not just looking at the details of my story in terms of getting documentation, but also just looking at from the whole cause and effect of my whole life and the trauma resolution I've had to do. Yeah. How, how has the culture changed there since you were first there at eight years old? Uh, I remember you said that they anointed you with ashes from the fire and rubbed yeah. them on your, your skin and hair, and a woman sang to you and held you as, as a child. You were frightened at first, but then you felt the strong mothering from her from her, uh, and uh, you felt very happy there. Now, how is that? How is it different today? That is a perfect lead-in to telling you the highlight of the whole trip. So, so Miami is just so affectionate with me, and it's just an incredible thing to, you know, just show up after forty years and just literally, you know, have her hold me in her arms and just. She was a very strong woman. So she, you know, the first reunion we have, which is, just so people know on my, um, I do have a video on YouTube.
YouTube, and about 40 minutes into the YouTube video is my reunion with Miami two, from two years ago. And, you know, we, it was, we hadn't actually, she knew I was coming, but we literally met each other on the road as I was coming in. Talk about divine arrangements. And she was so strong, she just practically picked me up off the ground. And she was the, she checked where the bullet wound was on top of my head. And we purposely had not told anyone where my bullet wound was. And so she had to know that firsthand, which was the first really huge confirmation we had that, you know, she was definitely the right person. So she is just so warm and welcoming. And the idea got going of, you know, why don't we do a ceremony again now that Robin's back? And so we went to some of the elder uh, healers, which are called Sungamas, and asked them if they would, you know, some of the local people asked, you know, would you be willing to do a ceremony now that Robin is back? You know, she had some as a, as a child when she was with Village 16. And and it was a very interesting experience. The, um, his name is Indane. And we sat and down together, and he and I just looked at each other, you know, two intuitives. We were just looking at each other, energetically checking each other out. Mm-hmm. And and he felt really wonderful, very clear, very pure, intense, very, I could feel his connection to the land, I could feel his connection to the ancestors, I could see ancestors through him. And he looked at me for the longest time, and his smile slowly grew across his face. And then he just started laughing, laughing and laughing in that wonderful smile. And he said, yes, you know, we'll, we'll do ceremony with this one, and, and it will be interesting. <laughs> And tell us what happened through the ceremony. So we um, were amazed how many people gathered. It was about 80 people gathered. And, you know, and I remember, I knew what I remembered as a child in terms of the drumming and the dancing. Mm -hmm. And so it was the same. And the drums that were pulled out were old. And somebody pointed out to me, these might still be the same drums that you knew as a child, which was incredibly moving and valuable for me. Yes. And so when the opening of the ceremony started, um, one of the other uh, women who was with Sangama, her name is Melita, she, you know, pulled me into the center and kind of got me dressed up in different regalia and had me be part of the opening ceremony. And so fortunately, I remembered a little bit from childhood and also I've been part of Native American ceremonies here in North America. And it was surprisingly similar, so I knew what to do. Mm-hmm. And... In terms of blessing the land and getting you offer some food to the land first, you're feeding the ancestors, and then the dancing and the drumming began. And I did my best to remember from my childhood how to do the dancing. I just couldn't possibly keep up with the women; they're just so <laughs> skillful in their dancing. Their feet were just moving so fast. But I did my very best, and I just went full out. And when I really let myself get into it the women in the circle just howled in laughter. And I, I turned to somebody who spoke English and I said, is it because I'm dancing well, I'm dancing badly, or they just haven't seen a grown white woman dance? And she said, probably all of it. <laughs> <laughs> so the depth of the celebration, the, the magnitude of the welcoming back that they gave me was just incredible. And at the end of the ceremony, and I will tell you more about it, Vanessa, who was our host, the closest white people, she kind of pulled me inside and said, Robin, 
I just want you to know that Digby, her husband, has lived here all his life, and he's never been welcomed into a ceremony, let alone to participate, and that she's lived there for like 20 years. And kind of at best, they were allowed to be off to the side at some distance at the end of the ceremony. And she said, so to be welcomed into this center is because they know you, and they, you know, these are some of the people that remember you, and they remember the stories about you. So it was an incredible honor to be welcomed right into the center. And and so the idea of this particular ceremony is to receive a vision from the ancestors. And and so, you know, through the dancing, through the drumming, it kind of puts people into a trance state where they can get opened up so the, the portal between the living and the those who have crossed over can be opened up so the communication can, can happen back and forth. And... And so I was definitely feeling affected, and being a near-death experiencer, and um, and also just I'm, I think I was already born intuitive. I'm much more um, going into trance, going into altered state is um, quite accessible for me. Mm-hmm. And so the so two of the women in particular just felt very open to me, and and one of them I was getting closer and closer to her drum, and I had the feeling like I could dive head forward through the drum, you know, to the realm of the ancestors, to the place of listening. And so they kept encouraging me to get closer and closer. And the beauty and intensity of this woman drumming was so powerful that it did open me up. And I did drop into vision, meaning I literally kind of went down to the ground. They covered me with a cloth. And the vision I received was seeing a a metaphor of kind of the collective humanity and a very big thorn in the side of humanity. And and what the ancestors said to me is, it is your job as you know, the healing power that we've given you to take that thorn out of the side. And I said, oh, it's so big, I don't know how to do that. And they And they chided me. They said, you're denying what we've given you. You do have that potency. And they said, put your hand up to the side of the thorn. So I, in the vision I did that, I put my hand up. And and they said, now back your hand away. And the thorn came with my hand, like as if there was a kind of a connection, a potency, a kind of a magnetism. Mm. And the thorn came out of the side of that metaphorical humanity. And once it was out, it didn't have any potency to harm. And so I asked, well, what is the thorn made of? And I heard it's duality. It's us-them thinking. It's comparison to thinking I'm less than or I'm more than another. And therefore, I deserve more or I deserve less. And I realized it was the, that thorn was the place where we can decide, oh, somebody you know, if they had abuse, they deserved it. Or if somebody is in poverty, not my problem, they deserve it. Or, you know, if I had abuse, you know, it's because I'm less than. And to remove it just brought back equality, brought back humanity in each person, brought back connection, what was more possible because we are created from the same divine source. And what was really fascinating was the next day we were going on a, we were traveling over to one of the places where 
I was and hadn't visited already. And we were um, driving in a, in a very big vehicle and out in the bush. And we stopped to look at this really incredible bird. And I moved my hand on the seat and I got stung by a bee right in the center of my palm. Mm. And I was very startled. And then um, somebody had to help remove, you know, get tweezers out and remove the stinger from the center of my palm. And it took about 10 minutes for it to dawn on me, but I thought, somebody, I had to receive help to receive, to take out the thorn from the center of my palm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I thought, now, wow. isn't that interesting? And that the reciprocity of, you know, the healer needs healing and the places where we're all vulnerable and the places where we're powerful. And so we went back kind of on the way home and I, we stopped at one of the homes of the, the woman from Gama, Molita, and I told her, because I had told them my vision, and I said, well, I just wanted you to know that I was stung in the center of my palm by a bee, and I had to have the thorn removed. And she laughed and laughed, and she <laughs> loved that. And <laughs> and speaking of the, the generosity of the culture, she dressed us up again in regalia and was like, okay, take pictures, and she dressed up John and <clears throat> Tarquin, who's the um, son of our host, he's a, our, our translator, and and so she just had a delightful time, and John and I did a singing medicine for her, and she loved it. So the the generosity, and it just strikes me over and over again that the level of racism and economic oppression that these people are living in, and in, you know, and some people are very angry, and there is hostility, but so many people are so welcoming, so generous, you know, they. They fed us, and it's just the place in my heart that has so much deep connection to these people. just really can't understand the systemic and very aggressive racism that comes at them. And, mm-hmm. I, like, just for example, a, a positive thing, like right when we were on our way to leave, we were in the airport, and the waitress comes up to John and I, and she can't know if we're racist or not. And she walks up to us with this beautiful smile and she says, Hello, my lovely family. How are you this evening? And I thought, mm. her, you know, the, the racism that she's received, she's still this generous, this open-hearted in taking this risk. And, you know, of course, it melted our hearts. And we just were delighted to be connected to her. So that's really the the key that I'm reminded of over and over again is that they took a risk to save my life as a child. And for those who don't know all the details, the when one of the women found me after the attack on my village and I had to run to escape, that she found me the next day and, you know, again, I was covered with dried blood and she picked me up and put me on her back and took me back to her homestead. And that was an incredible risk for her. If she was found by the guerrilla soldiers harboring me, then that could have been life-threatening to her family, which, again, we found out more information that might be why my village was attacked, because they were harboring me, a white child. And and so when others saw that she was harboring me, they said, don't bother with her. It's too dangerous. And she said, she's a living human being. I won't throw her away. 
And so in all my sharing my story, all my recovery from my own trauma is, is about that, about sharing what they did to love bravely, sharing the, the courage that they took to take a risk to save my life. Mm-hmm. And, and what was said to us over and over again, because of the magnitude of danger, because of the number of times you know, I was shot, that I was shot at, is people said to me over and over again, the only reason that you're alive is because it's God's will and that you have a mission and that God you know, brought you back or saved you because you are the keeper of the story. And because I have American white privilege, I'm going to be able to get my story out in the world and share the love of these people who are to me the... You know, so many of them are the epitome of generosity and their ability to connect through trauma, beyond trauma, through racism, through economic oppression is just mm-hmm. extraordinary. And that that's really the crux of my message. It's not about me. Um, and it also is a story about healing trauma. And, you know, just even since I've been back five weeks, one of the key pieces that we found in the story that was uh, I had still been repressing was we spoke with somebody who was actually on what would be considered the guerrilla side and he had a very critical piece of information. He said, you know, he said, Robin Aisha, you actually had been, the soldiers who picked you up took you to an area that was incredibly dangerous and there was an argument from the guerrilla soldiers about whether to kill you or whether to help you and take you closer to a border. And as soon as he said that, I started having flashbacks about this argument over me. And it was Mm. extremely heated, and it was in Venda, so of course I couldn't understand it. And from my perspective, it ended because my nervous system knew that this was about my life, knew that I was either going to die or live, and that people were extremely angry. And so my nervous system went into full protection, which is called dorsal vagal shutdown. And I, <clears throat> I literally went unconscious. Mm. And so obviously, um, you know, the person who was advocating to take me closer to the border won. Um, and what this man said is that he was assigned the job to go pick me up and take me closer to the border. But by the time he drove there, a man named Alexander had already taken me. And so I had always remembered a truck ride with a man but I didn't know where to place it. But now that we have this, you know, somebody else helps me kind of piece it together. But it was Alexander who took me to Village 16, which is right next to the South African border. So again, it's really through the interviews of people who were there at the time that are helping me piece together more of the history. And, yes. and you know, and just to be, you know, full disclosure, fully honest, just knowing that I was going to talk about this, you know, last night when I was going to sleep, my body was reliving some of that trauma. And I was, I was shaking, my whole belly was trembling, my heart was racing. And so these are the, what it takes to heal trauma is to go from numb, to go from repressed, to go from having to block it out, to allowing the body to remember, to allowing the body to let it come forth. And that often looks like shaking. It often looks like trembling. It often does look like 
letting the disturbance arrive, feeling the feelings, and then getting to the resolution. And so that's what I do in helping people heal for trauma. Is that I've been a psychotherapist for 16 years. And then I also need my help in, you know, in the more pieces I've done, you know, the majority of my healing from trauma. But obviously I still continue in that journey. So later on today I have a, a session for myself to help myself and, and receive a service from somebody else continue that work and so really to get across to my brother and sister trauma survivors who you know most all of us have had something difficult in our lives or will have something difficult and and my message is it's okay to allow that to surface to come through so we can get to the peace so we can regain our ability to connect to others because that's what trauma messes with is our ability to connect to ourselves connect to our body, connect to others, to animals, to the land, and that and that I want everyone to feel alive, to feel free in their ability to connect with others. And so that's very much part of my mission. And and so much so that it's kind of sparked that I'm gonna write another book called When We Need a Miracle, you know, to go from numb to being able to connect. And that's part of why I've really um dove into so much reading and doing um, trainings with some of the best leaders in trauma resolution because I want all of us to feel available to ourselves, to do our mission, to love and connect in the ways that make life just beautiful and worth living. Yes. Speaking of <clears throat> books, has your book come out yet? Not yet. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I gave it out to um, a New York agent. Uh, in about February, and get some very hard feedback, and because you know, just that's the way the uh, world of publishing works. Um, but it did spark me to want to write the book about healing trauma, and yes. and so that's that's kind of what I'm focusing on right now. Um, my thought right now is I'm going to bring out the book about healing trauma first, and then bring really? out my me- memoir. I'm not wow. totally set on that plan, but. I'm also just really having been back, I'm really much in a resting cycle and integrating. Like I said, I'm still integrating this piece that I was in the hands of the guerrilla soldiers and they they had this argument over whether to help me live or to end my life. So I'm just letting that, that percolate for myself. What an insight that must be for understanding race relations in this country, say from the from the black perspective, uh, because you were you were the minority that was hated in Rhodesia, yeah. And uh, you, you, even as an eight year old child, you you for some of them you symbolized everything that was wrong in their lives. Yeah, you can uh, yes. understand the intensity of why some of them would want to kill you under those circumstances. Right. Yeah. I'm the daughter of the oppressor. I'm the one who took their land. I'm the one. You know, that's what I represented. And and that's also very much the integration that happens when I go back is, you know, even even Digby, who's lived there all his life, he said, he said, if I were a black man in this country at that time, I would have taken up arms also. And, you know, and this is a man whose farm was taken, some of their home was destroyed. And he gets it. He gets that, you know, generational oppression does result in desperate anger. And economic oppression does result in 
extreme measures. And so when we look at non-hating, we need to look at social justice. We need to look at economic equality. We need to look at the generations before. And so when I go, of course, you know, I want to be safe and not expose myself to anyone who's hateful, but to look at it in a larger context instead of just individual relationships or just even looking at it in one time period, but to look at it for the past hundred years. So that's, that's a really important part also why I'm sharing my story and writing my books is to, is to really raise those questions like how can we truly um, include people in economic equality? Yes. Robin, we're just about out of time. Um, so take, uh, take a moment to tell, uh, the audience how they can find your art and your writing and um, maybe your speaking schedule? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my website is my name, robinlandsong.com. So it's R-O-B-I-N. Landsong is just like the two words, land, L-A-N-D-S-O-N-G.com. And so my artwork is on there. A lot of it's inspired from my near-death experience. And um, I also do distance healing sessions and in-person healing sessions so people can sign up for a distance healing session. And um, and I'm working on it as far as my books. I'm just letting it really come through divine <laughs> inspiration. I just yes, I'm, just, I, I'm glad to hear about your your new idea for a book, but I am uh, anxious I to see your memoir. That's that's uh, I'm sure many people are looking forward to that. Yeah, and just really letting it, I want it to be the best it can be, so I'm not rushing it. I've worked on it for a decade. It took that long to really bring all the memories into a cohesive story. And mm. so, so you know, kind of I'm being very un-American. I'm not rushing. <laughs> <laughs> and Robin, th- I, thanks yeah. so much. Uh, just to say that we're, that we are out of time, and mm-hmm. I want to thank you for being on NDE Radio once again. If, if listeners would like to hear this or any of our past shows, just go to our website, NDE Radio, and hit the Past Shows button. And for more information about IANS, just go to their website at IANDS.org. And be with us again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening. <laughs>